April 14th, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Kara Federmeyer. Hi, Kara. Hi. Kara is an associate professor uh, at the Beckman Institute and in the Department of Psychology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her lab studies the neurobiological basis of meaning and how multimodal integrative factors like context impact access to meaning in younger and older populations. And around the room, we've got Nicole Witta. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And me. I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, Kara, your research points to um, language comprehension being at least in part a predictive process where top-down information is used in real time to influence meaning during perception. Um, why is that a controversial idea? Is it a controversial idea? And what are the arguments for language comprehension being seen as, as purely integrative and bottom-up and, you know, perception, meaning, recognition? It's, it's an interesting question whether it's still a controversial idea. Um, it's certainly been controversial in the psycholinguistic field for a long time. Um, there is some sign now, though, that more and more, particularly um, younger psycholinguists, take it as an obvious fact that um, language processing might be predictive like many other sort of cognitive functions. Um, you know, some of the early arguments for um, why language might not be predictive um, come from ideas that um, language is a, a fast, serial, modular sort of process. And so the idea is you you get a word and you're going to initiate this um, very automatic, knee-jerk um, uh, pattern sort of response to it that's going to very rapidly extract the form information and link that into meaning. And so that these early stages of processing leading to, say, the recognition of a word are going to operate sort of independently of context, which partially for timing reasons, that um, we need that process to be very, very fast, and maybe it would be easier if you're not having to deal with lots and lots of sources of information and trying to put them together in real time. Um, and other arguments were just that language isn't terribly predictive. The second word of a sentence isn't, you know, very predictive. And so um, you might wonder, you know, is it smart to use resources to predict if a lot of time you're going to be wrong and then you have to correct errors. Um, and so um, so this is sort of the controversy. How much is language like other sorts of cognitive processes? And, um, and it's, I think some of the views that of language as a less predictive system were coming from um, times in which people really thought of language as um, a, a very specialized sort of process and that operated in a very feed-forward manner. So could you just map out um, in, in the broadest sense, and we'll get to hemispheric differences <laughs> later, because right. I know some of this ties into that, how functionally distinct or interconnected are the machinery for language comprehension and language production? Because it seems like pr prediction and predictive processes would be kind of the link between those two. Exactly. Right? That's how we've been thinking of them. Um, and that's another hugely controversial area of um, you know, there's just a lot of disagreement. Um, I think everybody agrees that meaning is meaning and that the meaning you're using when you're producing would be the same meaning you're trying to get to when you're comprehending. Everything beyond that is unclear. So maybe, you know, um, grammatical processing and um, sort of high-level um, abstracted representations of word phonology would be the same for getting word out of your mouth and for comprehending it. But there have been arguments that... Um, that these things are very separate, that you have a separate mental dictionary for producing language, even from the one for comprehending it. And um, 
So we, we tend to think of the brain machinery as very integrated. Um, obviously, there are some differences. There are things you have to do when you're perceiving language that have nothing to do with when you're producing and vice versa. So at the margins, you know, uh, pr- comprehension is a sensory intake process and language production has important motor components. And um, But everything in between is kind of up for grabs and debatable. Um, and we think that um, a lot of it is, is at least integrated, um, if not if not identical. So what's the what's the secret for resolving these things? I mean, if people are just saying, "Well, I think language works like this," and laying out some kind of scheme of the sequence of events in perception, and somebody lays out another scheme, right. how do you tell which one is? Is right. Well, so part of what's going into the debate, for example, on production and comprehension are um, patterns of deficits seen in particular patients. And of course, what gets difficult about this is that, you know, you. Uh, patients fortuitously come along and suddenly someone finds a patient that, say, can comprehend a certain set of words that they don't seem to be able to produce. And does this now imply that, you know, their mental dictionary for production is, in fact, distinct? And so certainly people try to test this. They try to see whether... um, for example, implicit learning of uh, phonological sequences um, through comprehension will then translate into people producing those sequences. We see the same sort of learning. Um, and as is often the case, um, results vary across method. And, um, and I think language is a particularly difficult one because it's so dynamic and there's lots of different reasons that a patient, for example, might have production problems that don't show up in comprehension. Um, they, they might be a representational separation, but it might also be something to do with exactly how these things are processed. And so it becomes very difficult. In other areas of Cognitive science, which all of which I know nothing, <laughs> but uh, it, it seems to me that reaction time experiments have been really powerful for determining what happens before or after what and how long something takes. And so uh, I was kind of struck maybe that some of your uh, ERP recordings are a little bit like reaction oh, time very experiments much like and yeah. could be used. To dice yes, time exactly. Uh, yeah, I think ERPs are very powerful for exactly that reason, and that um, I, I like ERPs in part because they do provide a link to the neurobiology. But even if you didn't care, if you were a psychologist and a linguist who happened to not care about the brain at all, Manny Donchin, um, who um, is a kind of grandfather of the field, um, was famous for arguing that he didn't care if the ERPs came from the big toe. They were still a great way to understand cognition for exactly this reason, that you have fine-grained um, timing, you have subcomponents of this waveform that are dif- differentially sensitive to different cognitive processes. So that's one of the problems with reaction times, which have indeed been very powerful. But um, a reaction time is going to sum across lots of different processes and processing stages, and really all you get is that final summation, and the ERPs offer the promise to break that apart a bit and sort of see, okay, no, it's in this particular processing stage that there's, say, a bottleneck of processing. This is where things are slowing down. Um, So they're wonderful psychological measures, um, even leaving aside their connection to the brain. Um, And and they do reveal 
in the context of language, um, you know, that there are differences in the time course with which you get information about meaning, that you know that there's a grammatical violation, that you are bringing online processes related to imagery, that you are, um, you have maybe multiple meanings becoming active with an ambiguous word, and the processes that help you select one of those meanings have a different time course than the processes that activated those meanings to begin with. And um, so you can... Um, begin to tease some of these things apart, but um, it's still hard. It's the the thing is, is that of course you might see a, a process in comprehension, say that is um, tied to um, looking up a, a word's meaning, um, and you would you might see another response related to the same thing in production, and it's very difficult to know whether those are in fact the same responses um, because there are lots of things going into processing at any given moment. Different things are adding up. Um, the same process might look different um, electrophysiologically when it's in the context of other things and different things have happened just before or after it. So it still doesn't become super easy to just line things up and be sure whether or not they, they really should be called equivalent. The thing that worries me about them most, looking just looking at them, is that there are components, named components, that happen in a sequence yes. as if they were independent of each other. Which they're but, not. Which clearly. they're not, right? But the early ones are still going on. The early processes are still going on yes. when the late processes happen. Yes. So a change in the early one ought to propagate down the whole thing. It looks like sometimes it does. Right. In a way that obscures the later components. Can be very difficult, yes. So is there one... This has been an old problem with just recording synaptic potentials when you stimulate some places that you get this sequence of them and the early ones obscure the onset and right. the properties of the late ones. And sometimes it's possible to, to uh, delete processes. Like an uh, old-fashioned thing to do for synaptic things is to give uh, barbiturates, which knock out the late phases of everything, uh-huh. clarify. Has there been any attempt to sort of... Uh, to pharmacologically or physiologically dissect each of these components? A little bit. I mean, mostly the way uh, we handle it is being absolutely fanatical about experimental control. And so what you try to do is to ensure that everything, and everything really means, you know, the contrast of the words and the length of the words and, you know, um, everything you can think of is going to be the same so that um, you don't actually see you'll see early components, but you won't see differences on those early components. So when you have a difference later, you can interpret it. It's not always possible to do that. Um, Recently, people have started using um, ERPs in conjunction with um, TMS sorts of measures. So um, then you could try... where you stimulate the brain. Where you stimulate the brain. Through the skull. Through the skull, right. Um, Either with a single pulse of um, a single magnetic pulse or with a repeated series of pulses, which induces a kind of, yes, temporary lesion, if you will. And so um, that's been one way that people have tried to do it. Um, There are some labs that also look at um, various pharmacological agents, Um, although I can't can't think of examples in exactly this way of trying to to use it to sort of, you know, um, to, to wipe out earlier stuff. But, yeah. So the ERP itself is a summed measure. Is yes. the variance important at all of your individual trials? Does anyone look at the variability? People also do sometimes look at the variability, probably not as much as they should in the sense of using that as an actual measure. I mean, people use the variability in the standard statistical sense to see if, you know, you have a real difference, say, between two conditions. Um, but there is... Um, 
there are, you know, pockets of the field that have begun looking at ERPs in, in different ways and trying to look at some of the variability to get at that. Um, and it's, it's very much, it's a, it's a multiply derived measure. You know, it, it's summed across trials. It is relative to a pre-stimulus baseline. It's relative to a reference electrode. It requires the summation of a lot of neurons before you could possibly see something at the scalp. So lots of constraints in what you're looking at. Yeah. So one of the big, tools that you use um, in terms of ERP markers is this N400, which right. is a hallmark of meaning, and it's sort of an interesting point. Uh, can, can you talk to us a little bit about the N400? Right. So the N400 is a um, part of the normal response that you get to meaningful or potentially meaningful stimuli in all modalities. So sensory stimuli, visual, auditory, somatosensory, olfactory elicit a sort of characteristic set of ERP features within the first couple hundred milliseconds, which are different across modalities. So you have an auditory ERP, a visual evoked potential. Um, Interestingly, all of them then um, sort of culminate in this response that in young adults peaks around 375 milliseconds. It begins around 250 milliseconds. Um, it's a negative going response using standard sort of reference schemes. And um, and the size or amplitude of this response has been shown to vary with a lot of different factors that sort of have in common um, that they manipulate the um, degree to which it should be easier or harder to process the meaning of the word. Or perhaps a, um, a less abstract way to say that, um, to, to look up um, associated features of that input in long-term memory. And, so can I, can I yes. you there about um, uh, use of the, of the word meaning? In yes. terms of, uh, so it's obviously a kind of a placeholder for lots of things. Absolutely. And there's a question of which various ways of thinking about what meaning means. Right, yes. <laughs> uh, um, and it seems like, well, so one that may be more the way that I am thinking about it right now <laughs> is this, this is a meaning maybe uh, tied to uh, either making a, a decision or some kind of behavioral response where you have to decide to do something rather than just take something in. Right. Is that is that a, an appropriate generalization of meaning in terms of... I don't think the N400 has much to do with behavioral responding quite... I think it precedes that stage. So components after the N400 are very sensitive to tasks, task goals, attention, motivation, um, your awareness of the stimuli. The N400 um, certainly is sensitive to attention in the most basic sense that it is sensitive to um, how, select, say, visual uh, spatial attention um, will modulate the strength of the feed-forward volley. So if you're um, looking at the stimulus but you're actively attending somewhere else in space, you don't get much of any N400 activity. But the N400 is um, seems to be sort of pre-conscious and pre-evaluative, um, if you will. So it's not as sensitive to um, particular task goals, particular ways that people are going to be using this meaning in the context of behavioral goals. And you can see the N400 in um, a a variety of circumstances in which people don't do a very good job of um, 
reporting the stimulus. So it seems to be, if you want to say pre-conscious or pre-working memory, so you can see N400s in certain stages of sleep for auditory inputs. You can see N400s during what's known as the attentional blink, so it's a window of time in which people have a lot of trouble um, reporting the um, existence of particular stimuli in a very rapid stream when you've just identified. So you usually have two targets, you identify the first target, then there's a window of time in which people can't consciously report, say, that a particular word occurred. Um, but you nonetheless see N400 effects to that word in that time period. Um, and amnesic patients who say can't report that a word has been repeated show perfectly normal N400 repetition effects. So um, in a lot of ways, the N400 seems to be a gathering up of sort of distributed information, and that's what I sort of mean by meaning, um, linked up with a, a particular input, the one you're time-locking to, um, at a stage that's, that's prior then to sort of figuring out what to do with that input. Is it meaningful for my task? Should I respond this way or that way to it? So I think it's kind of on the cusp of going into a stage in which the system becomes more evaluative and maybe where we sort of tip the balance from being a fairly perceptually oriented response to being a more, um, you know, tapping into motor system sort of output responses. So what about, so I guess I have two, two kind of related questions. So what is a, so what's a meaningless stimulus? Well, the, it's an interesting thing. There, there um, almost isn't a meaningless stimulus. So um, the, it, it, it is the case that there were, you don't always see N400. So if you're giving people, say, um, a stream of very simple perceptual inputs, beep, 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 boop sort of things, you don't seem to see an N400 to the beep and the boop. And yet you do see it to words, and then you do see it to these things that look like they could be words but aren't words. And it was with that sort of in mind that people said, oh, well, you get N400s to things that look like they kind of could be meaningful. The more we've pressed that, though, um, um, the more we found that there seems to be N400-like activity to almost every kind of stimulus under the right circumstances where that stimulus isn't terribly um, expected. So part of the problem with um, the fact that you inferring that there's no N400 from the fact that you don't see it to beep, 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 is that when you're only hearing beeps and boops, they're all very, very facilitated. So maybe you are getting the same kind of activity, but you've just got the system in a very facilitated state. And it's also the case that um, to the extent that there isn't much associated stuff in long-term memory, you're probably not going to see a lot of that activity. So I would argue that basically you get this, you go through this circuit probably to any perceptual input. Um, but some inputs drive it better than others because they, they actually do end up eliciting a lot of um, distributed information. So how have you used the N400 to actually make any conclusions about uh, the use of prediction in language comprehension? <laughs> So we've done that a couple of different ways. Um, most of our studies involve setting up um, situations in which you have uh, two words that from a, a sort of bottom-up perspective are, are equally um, good fits to the context, um, but that bear a differential relationship to um a word that might be expected. So you're reading a sentence like they wanted to make the hotel look more like a tropical resort. So along the driveway, they planted rows of people expect palms. And people do not think that pines or tulips are good endings for that sentence. But out of context, people agree that pines and palms share more features in common than do uh, tulips and palms. And so if you see a difference based on that out of context similarity, it suggests that what you've done is gone ahead and got 
gotten the features of the expected item um, ready so that when something that comes in that shares those features. So we did that at the semantic level. We've also shown similar things at the physical level. So if you're expecting the word wish, you get the word dish, it's easier to process Presumably, again, because it shares features um, with predictions. And then, um, but perhaps the more powerful evidence for prediction comes from not my work, but work like Nicole's, that has looked at um, the words in advance of a of a predicted um, word that share some features, um, a gender feature or a versus an, if you're expecting the word airplane versus kite. Um, and if you can see effects on those what we call function words, very simple words like a and an that don't themselves have any meaning features to disagree or agree with the context, then that tells us that people must have been expecting kite or airplane to have a differential response to a kite versus an airplane. Okay, and then, and then, so you, you've shown that that this use of prediction or context is not as apparent in older populations. Right. Is that right? So before you talk directly about that, I just... Uh, so in, in the absence of any difference in any comprehension measure, so these older people are showing the same level of, of understanding or, or meaning of the sentence right. that you provide them, in the absence of any other difference, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean that ERPs fundamentally mean something different in older brains or in terms of processing? Or? Well, so one of the things, I mean, one of the reasons that we like to use ERPs is that there's really not very good overt measures of comprehension. You know, you can ask people, do you understand the sentence? You can ask them questions about it, but really at some level that's very crude and it's also an end state measure. So you're, you've given people now extra time, they can ruminate on what they, um, and so, um, indeed the ERPs often reveal changes that aren't showing up in, in these end state measures. I think partly that means that our end state measures are accrued measures. And partly it means that um, one of the things that most fascinates me about studying um, language is that there are multiple routes just to getting to a state in which you understand something. And um, ERPs allow us to see those different routes. So um, some of them are going to be um, susceptible to different sorts of errors. Um, some of them are going to work better or worse under noisy conditions. So there should be cases in which we can play it out and see these things. So it's not that they would never show up in behavior, but they might not um, under unless we really push the system to reveal them. Um, so I don't think it's that ERPs, uh, the basic physiology of what we're measuring has to be essentially the same in, in old and young adults. Um, there are, of course, lots of other um, even anatomical changes that happen with age that will change the particular form of the response might change where it's biggest over the scalp, if there's a, a change in the in the a generator's distribution in the head sort of thing. But, um, but no, I mean, we, we generally, um, part of the backdrop is that um, it, it looks like basically functionally the same response. So it's not that young adults elicit this N400 thing and older adults don't show anything like it. They show something very much like it. But when we push the system in particular ways, we can see subtle differences in the pattern that are revealing of things that the brain is or is not doing as well with age. So the so the, the bottom line then is that the processing at the processing level that older people are using different strategies. Yes, and we see that too. We can um, we see that across the hemispheres, but we can also we can break the system in young adults. You can make young adults um, not show as much evidence for prediction. One way to do that is simply to give them a lot of sentences in which that lead to a strong prediction for a particular word, and then you give them something in the ballpark, but not quite the right word. So. Um, 
When John got to the sand, he took off his most people expect shoes. If you give them boots, um, so if you have a lot of these things where you're giving somebody a synonym that's not quite the right thing, um, what happens fairly rapidly actually is that young adults stop showing predictive patterns in their ERPs and they start looking like older adults in that sense. So the system is flexible. It knows um, there are cases in which the predictions do not seem to be very helpful, may actually be harmful, um, and uh, we have found some recent evidence that prediction can be turned on and off even within young adults. Within older adults, it seems to be a little more uh, systemic, and um, the the patterns that we get would suggest that it's probably beneficial to older adults. In fact, in some respects, it's probably more beneficial for older adults to be able to predict in some circumstances because it is a way to help with noise and other things that also increase with age. You're not hearing as well. You're not seeing as well, perhaps. Um so one would speculate that they would like to be able to do this if they can. And indeed, we typically find that of the older adults that show prediction, it's the higher functioning ones that are doing that, which is another indicator that it's something the system would like to be able to, to continue doing. Um, but it seems to become more difficult as we age. So the, <clears throat> excuse me, the N400 uh, in general goes down, the, the N400 effect goes down with age. And so yes. what's the relationship between just a general... Uh, loss of amplitude in, right. in, in the in the effect versus the the difference between what you're predicting. Yeah, we worry about scaling effects a little bit because you know you're you're just dealing with a different size of response and maybe you have um, a different ability to to see it. It's pretty the the global changes with age are pretty predictable. There's a change in latency. Um, I think the estimate was you lose about two milliseconds a year off of your N400 latency, um, starting from the age of something like 20 or 25. Um, and you also see an amplitude reduction, although that it's difficult to determine whether that's an actual reduction in amplitude to each of the, the stimuli, because we're looking at an average, it might also be um, more variability in time that would tend to sort of smear the response out. So what we try to do is take advantage of what we know about the changes that um, that occur with age, and we correspondingly use more people, more trials, and um, to increase our power to see the smaller differences we would predict. And um, we're not worried then about the absolute difference. We're um, looking to see if we can see the same patterns. And in some cases, it's a pretty... It's, it's a radical change, and it also helps when you can see among older adults that there is a subset that shows this response, so you, that we have the ability to find it when it's there. Mm-hmm. So, so, so a lot of this top-down processing stuff ties into hemispheric laterality because we right. do see differences in, in the two hemispheres and how they handle um, language processing. Let's backtrack a little bit. Could you first set up some of the very, very basic ideas on, on laterality and language? Because you can't really talk about language without talking about laterality. Right. In terms of also comprehension versus production. Right. And, and, um, and, and maybe how, how some of these ideas have progressed as folks have moved sort of more into the physiological realm like you have. Right. So language is one of the, the best known um, instances of a, of a strong functional um, lateralization and actually played a very important role in shaping the history of neuroscience. Um, the, the discovery that certain areas in the left hemisphere but not the right hemisphere ha- um, were pre- predictive of language loss caused aphasia um, was some of the first evidence for lateralization, some of the first evidence for functional specialization of brain areas in general. And that's, of course, a very well-known um, 
lateralization, that there are left hemisphere areas that seem to be very um, important in the sense that it is not easy for the brain to compensate for their loss. Um, Broca's area and the insular cortex underneath it and um, Wernicke's area and superior temporal sulcus. But um, the characterization of these areas in terms of their laterality was mostly about production because that's what's easier to remember, to sorry, to measure. So you can see that patients are having trouble producing um, language. And um, there was a lot of assumption that uh, that comprehension was similarly um, as strongly lateralized. That was sort of just a standard assumption for a long time. Um, part of it also came from the fact that even in these ca- in these rare cases where you can measure the responses of the individual hemispheres and in patients who've had their corpus callosum severed, for example, um, because the right hemisphere can't talk, it's harder to measure its ability to comprehend. You know, um, um, but over the last 20 years or so, um, studies have increasingly shown um, more and more evidence that the right hemisphere is able to comprehend language. It was known from the beginning that it seemed to be able to comprehend at least individual words. And as we've used these um, non-invasive measures of comprehension that don't rely as much on output, um, we, we see that the right hemisphere can put together words to understand sentence-level meaning, seems to do so actually um, pretty much just as well as the left in, in a basic sense, and um, have allowed us to see that comprehension is, um, is still lateralized, but it's not lateralized in such a, um, a striking, all-or-nothing sort of way. It is um, uh, biases in different ways of approaching the problem of comprehending. And I think, um, ironically, in some sense, for, for traditional psycholinguists, the traditional psycholinguistic models that we talked about before are very feed-forward, um, almost serial sort of processing characterizes, better characterizes the, the nonverbal right hemisphere. Um, not really nonverbal, but um, traditionally thought of as nonverbal. Whereas the left seems to instantiate this more dynamic, um, predictive um, system in which we've argued that um, production and comprehension are occurring in, in tandem. And the left hemisphere is, in a sense, implicit, is um, internally producing, cre- creating predictions, and then that's shaping its comprehension. So is it still localized? I mean, the right hemisphere have a Wernicke's area, and damage there will mess up its comprehension. Um, it, it is the case that it is not um, a lot of these things. So um, do seem to be similar. So the the pathway from form to meaning. Um, it does seem to flow through pretty similar visual processing areas going down into the temporal lobe in both the right and left hemispheres. The left has another uh, another possible lateralization is the left's greater ability to deal with um, uh, language sound phonologies, particularly during reading. So there is some evidence that the left may have more of a tendency to um, map visual form onto auditory representations before going to meaning, and that the right is doing more of a direct visual form to meaning, sort of. But the general circuitry for comprehension is it seems to be unfolding similarly. Um, we have some emerging work trying to look at an area 
um, in there's a left hemisphere area that's sometimes been called the visual word form area that's been argued to be really important for word recognition. Some see it as the source of the mental lexicon or a very specialized area for decoding words and have strongly argued that it's indeed a left hemisphere function. Um, but interestingly, people just haven't looked as much at the right hemisphere. And so we've started to try to see what the right hemisphere version of that area can do and how it's different from the left. So how do you do that? Um, we're combining... FMRI methods um, with pattern classifiers. Um, so we're presenting people with uh, words and strings of things that look like they should be words but aren't, and um, strings of things that are made up of characters that aren't even letters. And um, then basically we train a, um, we measure FMRI as people measure the um, uh, the hemodynamic signals in in the areas as people are simply um, looking at these and um most of the work so far has looked at overall differences in activity levels. So the, this um, word form area is characterized in part by having greater activity to things like words than to, to things that aren't like words. And the right hemisphere shows a muted version of that. But this is really a crude way to see if an area can differentiate different types of stimuli because it will only show you that if the way it's differentiating stimuli is by um, by modulating overall large-scale activity levels. And so in a, a lot of other domains, um, face recognition and scene recognition, um, people have begun to use pattern classifiers to show that different configurations of neural activity are predictive of different types of stimuli, even different types of scenes, say, in um, scene processing areas. And so we plan to use this pattern classifier approach to see um, whether activity um, across this area can differentiate words and and pseudo-words and um, uh, other kinds of strings, and if the right can also do this, even though it's not modulating its overall activity level. keep the two sides from talking to each other during the experiment? I mean, couldn't the right just be get in this information from the left. Well, so in this case, we're not, um, we're, we aren't trying to do that in particular. We're just sending the stimulus in and we'll see what each hemisphere does and maybe they're communicating, maybe they're not. Um, when we, um, when we do visual half fields, um, presentation, which is what we, um, use to try to look at the, the hemisphere processing biases separately. And so we're taking advantage of the fact that things in the left visual field stimulate the right hemisphere. Um, you know, one of the nice things about using your P's in conjunction with these sorts of things is that if there is a um, transfer, that transfer takes time, and you should see delays, and you can measure those delays, and you can see those on sensory components very easily. So um, the you see a strong lateralization of the basic visual-evoked response. Um, it is bigger and earlier in the side that you stimulated. Um, later, however, the N400 doesn't show that kind of a delay, so it doesn't look like a transfer function. It has slightly different topography. Um, consistent with the idea that you are, in fact, um, looking at slightly different areas. I think the hemispheres certainly do talk to one another, but I think there's been a, a, a standing assumption kind of that um, if one hemisphere has information, why wouldn't it just transfer it to the other hemisphere? And um, I, I think... Part of the answer is that it's not advantageous for the brain to, um, to to duplicate its efforts in that way. And in fact, 
uh, somewhat um, side note, but we find that in older adults, um, higher functioning older adults are more likely to be those that have very different patterns of responses from their two hemispheres than those that are simply using their two hemispheres to do exactly the same thing the same way. So that doesn't seem to be a good strategy. Um, studies by Marie Banich and some of her colleagues have very clearly delineated that there are conditions under which it's advantageous for the hemispheres to share information and conditions under which it is not. But the bottom line is that really the corpus callosum relative to um, connections within hemispheres is a really low bandwidth channel. It's just not probably physically possible for the brain to really reduplicate all of that detailed information that it has within one hemisphere across. It's a big nerve, it's a big nerve bundle, but it's not that big. Um, so it, it almost has to be the case that the hemispheres um, have to do quite a bit independently and are sharing things at a, um, a, a less fine-grained uh, level of analysis. Um, they, they can probably tell each other, I have a stimulus, um, you know, that kind of thing, but... So is there any way to think, is there a thought about, so you, you have a case where, um, you're making a case where the left hemisphere has more of this feedback strategy right. than the right hemisphere. Does that inter- intersect besides with other things that are lateralized rather than language, like people talk about scale, spatial scale processing. Does it does it match or mismatch or different? Yeah. I mean, we've tried, in a sense, we've, I think a, a downside of the hemispheric difference field has been that people will find a difference in some area, spatial processing or global, local, and try to make that the, hemis- the overarching hemispheric difference. And, you know, I'm very interested in the question of whether um, the, the tendency for the left hemisphere to be predictive would extend beyond the realm of language. But we've really tried to stick to... Um, uh, the, the domain in which we, we think we have some evidence for why it might be. Um, so we think that the reason the left hemisphere might be doing prediction in comprehension is because of the production circuitry that we know is lateralized. And if you're not relying on that circuitry, there's no reason to necessarily think that this would extend to any other domain. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, so, um, so I think that some of the other um, lateralities, I mean, certainly they're going to play into how the hemisphere functions um, as a whole, but I, I don't think they're necessarily directly related in that sense. Is anyone in the language community looking at all at anything subcortical in, using fMR? I mean, is there, is there, are there any interesting dynamics there that have shown up? Uh, certainly there are some, there's some interesting... Um, there's got to be some interesting subcortical stuff. I'm trying to think. There's some um, code switching is one. Oh, okay. Realm. <laughs> They're looking at the cortical subcortical circuitry and the basic ganglia in particular, and the role the role that they play in in the ability to switch between languages uh, or the, the ability to stay within a language when you need to. Mm-hmm. So that's one one area. Yeah, that, right, um, right. I mean, that I know of. I mean, and then uh, aspects of language that are that are heavily prefrontal. Mm-hmm. Um, where you have the cortical prefrontal connections as well. But what would that mean? What aspects of language would be heavily prefrontal? Um, well, in, I, I know mostly of the bilingual literature, so that to me, to me, it's mostly the code switching where you're controlling executive function of where you where you want to be. I'm trying to think of something else though that is heavily prefrontal. Mm-hmm. I see. So prefrontal. I, I mean, I, uh, I work <clears> on the brain, but I don't know some of the meanings of things. So prefrontal means. Uh, that this is a part of the brain that makes decisions and exerts uh, its authority on other parts of the brain. 
Is that what that means? It's generally what people assume is, is yeah. going on. And so that and means these poor, like, but of parietal course, areas, they're just but like of course we, creating hypotheses yeah. and stuff. But of course we know the least. Exactly. Who then decides. Well, of course, we probably know the least about the prefrontal cortices to begin with. So, I mean, it's just been this generic idea that the prefrontal cortices. That's called executive control. Executive control area. Don't ask questions about it. But but I mean generally uh, yeah so so things that involve prefrontal lobe where you you know that there's a connection to the subcortical or the Mm -hmm. subcortical strong subcortical loops. That's what I was trying to get to, and I was trying to think of Sorry. Yeah, no. (laughs) That actually depend on the Uh, subcortical information. Yeah, that's what it's more importantly. So so those kind of, those areas. Well, you know, structures that, um, neuromodulatory sort of structures that may be also important. You know, there's beginning to be lines of work that look um, with with neuroimaging sorts of methods at relationships between emotion and language um, that's going to play into that um, and there's there's consistently interesting activity in the cerebellum in response to language so you know um, but I, and cerebellar damage has sometimes been associated with language processing difficulties um, we have a lot to learn about about that though so I was always I'm curious about what you think uh, features means because I know you're using it sort of freely because it's just something that's a developing idea. But do you think a feature is just about anything that's relevant to the particular task or the particular stimulus? Um, in terms of what, like, the infrared is binding together, what's the yeah. feature, meaning features of a word? I do. I think that feature is going to ultimately mean um, sensory-related um, activity from all sorts of sensory areas. It's going to probably involve some motor stuff. It's going to involve some emotional sorts of things. And one of the things I think is really an intriguing aspect of the N400 is that if the N400 is this um, timed sort of moment in which the brain gathers up a bunch of um, active stuff and binds it together to try to do something with it, 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 it implies that all kinds of stuff could be bound up and that things that are um, not directly per se related to this input but are active for whatever reason, um, they're in your environment, they were recently mentioned, there's something you're thinking about. Maybe you're a person who's depressed and, you know, sort of de- depression-related activity is always sort of a, a feature of the landscape. It suggests that all of those things get blended a little bit into the meaning of the current word you're processing or the current face that you're seeing and that you're binding those things together, at least temporarily. And you can imagine that if this happens often enough, that those actually become start to become associated, become part of the meaning, even if unintended. And I think I think it's a very um, intriguing sort of thing to think about. So for the M four hundred, it might be sort of where everything comes together. But do you think you should be able to eventually, when we when we refine our methods or refine oh, our sure. methods, see differences in the types of features that you yes. predict or the types? Yes, of and probably that's a I think a big part of what changes the scalp distribution of the N four hundred is that it seems like pictures of the same concept call to mind um, somewhat different constellations of sensory activity than do the words that would be used to name those pictures. And you could imagine that across languages, different sorts of constellations of features might happen to be associated with two words that ostensibly have the same meaning, but because that person has encountered those two words in different contexts and under different circumstances that... um, So, yeah, I think ultimately it would... you And then you should be able to tease those apart and, and find out with the right methods. Okay, well, thanks for being with us, Kara Federmeyer. This has been Neuroscientist Workshop. Shop.